Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, I guess today is Amy Lynn McGuire. Uh, she's a Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics, uh, Director at the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. And we're going to talk about the, uh, you know, the ethical, the legal, and the social implications of genomics and, and human genetics. So, Amy, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What, what are some of the, um, I know this has been attracting ethical issues for a long time, but what are some of the current ethical issues surrounding uh, genomics and genetic engineering and things like that? Yeah, so certainly, um, you know, the idea of doing uh, gene editing has generated a lot of attention in the last couple of years, the ability to go in and actually um, change your, your genes um, offers great promise, but also raises a lot of ethical concerns um, regarding sort of, um, you know, how we influence nature. Um, and uh, it, from that from that perspective, you know, and the other sort of perennial issue in, in human genetics and genomics deals mostly with privacy issues. And this gets played out in different ways um, as new uh, discoveries are made. The last couple of years, we've seen sort of a resurgence in concerns about privacy related to direct-to-consumer genetic testing and genetic genealogy and um, the use of information that's available in those databases by those whom we may not have anticipated originally, like law enforcement, being able to use that information to help them in their criminal investigations. Yeah, what happens if, um, you know, I, I get my, uh, my gene sequence, like by Ancestry.com, or, I don't know if they're around anymore, 23andMe, I guess they used to be, but, you know, one of those services, like, does my data forever stored and who can access it? So it depends what company you're using. Um, it's really important that if you're doing direct-to-consumer genetic testing that you're familiar with their terms of service and particularly their privacy provisions within those terms of service. Um, 23andMe and Ancestry, which are two of the largest companies, have um, they do keep your data. And oftentimes, um, as part of your terms of service, they may ask you if they can use your data for research purposes. I know 23andMe does. And um, the majority of people who sign up for 23andMe um, agree, either implicitly or ex explicitly, uh, to have their data stored and used for research purposes. And part of the big, mo uh, you know, part of the business model for companies like 23andMe is to amass these very, very large databases of individuals' genetic information, and then to sell those the access to that data um, to pharmaceutical companies and others that can use it to develop um, new drugs and to make new discoveries. Um, so you have to kind of understand where your information is going. With regard to law enforcement access to these databases, um, again, all of the companies have different policies and practices. Uh, 23andMe and Ancestry, uh, the two largest companies, have said that they will not share customer data with law enforcement agents for the purpose of um, you know, using it for their investigations unless there's a valid warrant that's issued. Uh, some of the other companies like Family Tree DNA 
are allowing law enforcement to access customer data, or not to access the data, but to, to a match to um, individuals who they may, uh, that there may be a relative match, a, a genetic relative might be in the database. So to get information about those matches um, using their data, if individuals don't opt out of it, and you have an option to opt out um, when you sign up for their services or when you're a customer. So I guess, is it, uh, I mean, is it transparent to figure out when you're signing up with a service, what's going to happen with your data, or is it buried in the, you know, a huge terms of service? Like, is it obvious or is it confusing? Yeah, so I think um, I think that's one of the major problems is sometimes it can be buried a little bit in the terms of service, and we know that most people don't sort of read through the fine print when they're signing up for a service like that online. So it's really important to kind of be, um, to be looking for it. Uh, some, some of the companies will actually ask um, whether you want your information used in certain ways and you have to make a proactive decision um, when you sign up and others, it's really just sort of an opt out that's mentioned in their terms of service and you have to know to look for it and then have to take proactive measures yourself in order to opt out of certain things. So it really depends on the company um, and it really requires consumers to be educated and to be aware of what they're looking for. So what are some of the other uh, ethical issues? I mean, are there any medical treatments right now that require uh, someone's genes to be sequenced or, you know, like very sensitive, non-changeable data to be obtained? So we're increasingly seeing the use of genome sequencing um, being integrated not only in biomedical research, but also in clinical care, yeah. So it's primarily being used right now. Um, this, this technology is being used for diagnostic purposes. Um, and so you can sort of sequence uh, somebody's genome and you may find things, everything from like, you know that they have some sort of genetic disorder, but you've never been able to figure out what it is. And the use of genome sequencing allows you to kind of identify um, what the biological basis of their condition is. Um, or you can also, you know, get, get information from individuals um, around their predisposition to certain diseases. So what's the likelihood that they'll um, based on their genetic information, what, what's sort of the predictive uh, likelihood that they might um, be at higher risk for certain kinds of common or complex disorders. So it is being used in a variety of clinical settings. Um, it's important to know that we were talking about privacy related to direct-to-consumer genetic testing. You know, there's, there's enhanced privacy protections when you're dealing with health information in a medical setting. And so we have, um, for example, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, um, and that protects against um, unauthorized disclosures of genetic information. Um, and we also have some laws that protect, protect against the discriminatory use of genetic information in certain settings like health insurance and employment. Well, are the laws strong enough? Are, are they adapted to genetic, genetic information or are they, do they deal with information that wasn't really contemplated you know, from, that, that could come from genetics? Yeah, so that's a great question. So some of the, the laws that we have in place um, are specific to genetic information. So the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which is commonly known as GINA, um, is a law that specifically prohibits the discriminatory use of genetic information uh, for health insurance and employment. Um, with regard to is that strong enough, I think um, many people would say it's not because there are many holes and areas where um, it doesn't protect against discrimination based on genetic information. Things like other areas of insurance, like life insurance, long-term care, disability insurance, um, as well as other sort of social uses of genetic information that might 
um, be uh, stigmatizing or discriminatory. And so a lot of people I think would like to see stronger um, protections in place. And there are others who have argued, just like you're saying, like, why are we treating genetic information um, special in these circumstances? Shouldn't we be protecting all sort of sensitive health information in the same ways? What's um, there? Are there ethical issues that, you know, the common person that hasn't sat and thought about it would be surprised to hear? Like, you know, what are some of the, I guess, strange or new or really thorny, you know, ethical issues that have come up uh, now that we can sequence genes? So, yeah, it's hard to say what the what the normal person has sit, sat around and thought about. I mean, I think actually we've done quite a bit of research talking to individuals about their concerns with regard to genetics and genome sequencing. And I actually think a lot of people think, um, create, you know, about things that are, are much more um, fa- fantastic than actually can happen. <laughs> People have very wild imaginations about the things that we can do with, with genetic information. Um, you know, I don't, I, the surprises, I think, um, you know, for example, we've been talking about law enforcement using genetic information to help them in their investigations um, or using the power of genetic information to make sort of matches to, um, you know, connect people who are genetically related to each other and using that in their investigations. I think that was quite surprising to some people. Um, you know, thinking back in hindsight, it's not terribly surprising since we've been using uh, genetics and forensic investigation for quite some time now. Um, but the ways in which they were accessing and using those tools, um, I think, was unanticipated by many people. Um, you know, other things that I think people worry about really have to do with things like can we use genetic information for to great social harm like you know um can we use it for um you know genetic warfare and things like that and and i think there's some some merit to those concerns although we haven't seen that play out to any extent um and so I think there are surprises. I think, you know, the power of genetics is incredible. But on the other hand, I think we're also starting to get some levity and understanding um, what genetics can and can't tell us. Um, So I think there was sort of this hype around the Human Genome Project and sequencing the human genome for many years. And people thought, well, this is going to be kind of the holy grail of telling us everything we need to know about our own health um, now and in the future. And people are real, coming to the realization, I think, it, you know, the common people are coming to the realization that genetics is important, but it's not all powerful and it doesn't tell us everything. It's not, it's not sort of a, um, a you know, crystal ball, um, that it's one piece of the puzzle that contributes to um, our health and our, and our well-being in the future. Um, but it's only one piece of the puzzle and, and equally as powerful is um, information about our environment and um, you know, other factors that influence our daily lives. Are there, um, uh, you know, so for instance, in order to, I don't know, rent a car, I need to get my driver's license. Uh, some places they want your social security number. Are there places popping up that in the future will say, well, we have to have your uh, gene sequence on file in order for you to use this service or, you know, uh, get this medical care or do whatever it is? So I haven't heard about that. I think that's one of the concerns that people had. I don't know if you saw the 1997 movie with Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman called Gattaca, um, but it was sort of a, yeah, a yeah. Yeah, sci-fi movie where that was exactly the premise, right? Where um, everybody had to get their genome sequenced at birth and then it was on file everywhere you went and it dictated what job you could get and it dictated what 
you know, where you could enter into businesses and what kinds of activities you could do in society. And, you know, I think that the, a lot of the concern over the years has been, you know, we don't want to become a society like they have in Gattaca. Um, and having a society like that is really premised on the misconception that genetics is um, deterministic, right? That it gives you information that actually would be useful for things like deciding what kind of job you could do. Um, and it's just not the case that, that that's, that's just not the case. Well, do you see that, uh, again, having your gene sequence will be a requirement to do anything or access anything in society, or is that well understood and no one's really even attempting to go there at all? Well, I, I mean, I can't say that it will never happen. I have not heard of any sort of, um, services that require you to have a genome sequence in order to access them, um, you know, so it's not required that you, uh, you know, get your genome sequence to get medical care. It's not required that you get your genome sequence to do um, anything that I can think of right now. Um, you know, I think we value a lot sort of um, individual autonomy, especially here in the United States. And um, so I think we, we, to the extent that having gen your genomic information available to you um, either in a clinical setting and or a direct-to-consumer setting is offered. It's very much an offer and it's, it's up to people. And there's a lot of people who don't want to know that information. Um, there's a lot of people who have decided not to, you know, even if they had the opportunity to do so, that would decide not to get that information about themselves. Well, what about when it comes to reproduction? Um, you know, are couples getting their gene sequenced and are they uh, looking for the potentiality of uh, them having a child with, let's say, Down syndrome or other maladies? And you know, is it coming into play there? Like, like what areas of society do you think gene sequencing will be, uh, I don't know, paramount or very important now or in the future? Yeah, so, um, you know, we have for, for many years now have had genetic tests that have been done to help people identify whether there are carriers of certain recessive conditions. So if, if um, and this has been done in, in particularly in certain populations. So um, I'm from Ashkenazi Jewish descent, we know that there are certain genetic conditions that are more prevalent um, in, in individuals from, from that particular ancestry. And so before I decided to start my family, I got carrier screening for some of those conditions to make sure that I and my partner were not both carriers that could pass that gene on. Um, and so we've seen the technology evolve where the number of things that people are getting screened for um, when they're doing family planning has expanded tremendously. And you can imagine when you could do whole genome sequencing and you could actually look for, um, you know, thousands and thousands of things across the genome that you could both be carriers for. Um, and so certainly we could see the technology being implemented in that way. It's also can be used um, in the prenatal setting. So once you actually do get um, pregnant, you could do prenatal testing on the fetus and you could look for a variety of things. And again, we've been doing that for years, looking for very specific things like chromosomal abnormalities that lead to things like Down syndrome. Um, but you could do things like whole genome sequencing and look for much more subtle um, changes that, that might have more or less definitive impact on future health. Um, so it might increase your risks, for example, of, you know, in adulthood getting like, let's say you find that a, a fetus has the BRCA gene mutation that increases your risk of getting breast or ovarian cancer, cancer as an adult. Um, I think there's some really, you know, important conversations to be said about or to be had about whether we 
um, use that information to make decisions about um, terminating a pregnancy or um, other things like that. So there's a lot of ways in which genomics can be used uh, for family planning, for prenatal screening. Um, you can use it for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So if you know that you're, you have a genetic condition uh, that's either dominant in your family or you have two recessive carriers for a genetic condition, and particularly if it's a devastating genetic condition, you could do something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis where you do in vitro fertilization and prior to implanting an embryo, you test the embryo to see if they carry that gene and you only implant the embryos that don't carry the gene. And that's way to, one way to avoid sort of devastating genetic conditions um, in future generations. So yeah, there are, there are many ways in which we can use the technology. Um, and certainly there's a lot of discussion about what is the slippery slope and where do we cross the line from really trying to prevent devastating fatal diseases that bring with them a lot of suffering and pain um, over to making value judgments about what lives are worth living um, that maybe we shouldn't be making. Are there any uh, countries that are embracing, uh, you know, sequencing all their people? Any ones that uh, are, are a concern to ethicists around the world? So there are some companies that have done more population screening, population sequencing than we have. Um, and they're really using it for research purposes um, at this point. Um, but they haven't sort of, as far as I know, um, you know, slid into the dystopian view of, of, you know, the Gattaca world that we were talking about earlier. Um, but there are some companies, the UK Biobank, um, UK has a large number of their uh, population that's undergone genomic sequencing. Some of the smaller um, countries like Iceland have done such. It's easier to do when you have sort of a uni universal health system that has everybody's medical information in one place. Um, it's a little bit more challenging and complex to do in a country like ours where there's so much sort of um, uh, there's so much heterogeneity and where people have their medical information and what software programs are being used and where they see their doctors and who's paying for it and all those kinds of things. The closest thing we have in the United States, I'd say, would be some very large-scale government-initiated programs um, that are trying to sequence large numbers of individuals, but not, and it's on a voluntary basis, of course, um, but they're not doing the entire population. So through the National Institutes of Health, we have the All of Us Research Program, um, which is uh, attempting to recruit a million individuals across the country who would volunteer to share their medical information and have their genome sequenced, and that would be used for research purposes. Um, we also have in the Veteran Affairs um, Division the uh, Million Veterans Project, which is, um, I think, even further along in collecting genetic information and doing genome sequencing on veterans um, in the VA system. So any trends right now in ethics? Uh, do they just kind of lag the technology or ride along with the technology? Or, you know, what do you see the next few years uh, shaping up to be in terms of the ethics of, of all this? Yeah. So, I mean, one of our goals in ethics as a bioethicist is really not to lag the technology too much. Um, you know, that is often the reality because, you know, things come out, there are new discoveries, and then there's sort of a period of time of which, you know, it takes for people to think about what are the ethical implications, what are the policy implications. But one of the ways in which we do our work is really to work alongside the clinicians and scientists who are at the cutting edge 
Um, and they're anticipating sort of what's coming down the pike in the next several years. And, and by being able to collaborate and have conversations, oftentimes we can anticipate some of those challenges and we can try to sort of get ahead of it. Um, you know, I think, right, it's hard to, it's hard to think about the next couple of years, at least, you know, outside of the context of what's currently going on in society around this global pandemic that we're experiencing. Um, so my answer to like, what are going to be the hot issues in the next couple of years might have been different a couple months ago. I think there's going to be a lot of sort of fallout on the um, research and clinical side in terms of thinking about how we balance competing values um, and new discoveries when we're in sort of a global health emergency um, and one that's probably going to last quite some time. Um, so I think a lot of the efforts are going to be focused, and, and particularly in genetics and genomics, I think there's a lot of work to be done to contribute to how we think about infectious disease in that space as well. Well, very good. What, what's the best way for people to, I don't know, to, to find out if other people have the same concerns they do about a particular issue, you know, ethics-wise? Is there a, an organization that they could, you know, look to that's put out papers, or like where is there a forum for people to think about this? Yeah, so um, there's the American Society um, for Bioethics and Humanities. That's our professional organization of people who are in the field of bioethics. And we have an annual conference every year that, um, you know, where people present their work and, and talk about these things. I mean, one of the great things about bioethics is that um, we are, the people in the field of bioethics are, you know, academics and they're doing scholarly work and they're publishing in medical and scientific and bioethics journals, but they're also probably um, more than in other fields engaged with the media, the mainstream media, and trying to um, discuss some of the ethical issues that really make it to mainstream media, because these are things that impact all of us in society. Um, and so it's really important to have open dialogue and public dialogue about what values are at stake and what values might be in conflict with each other as we talk through these these complicated issues. Well, very good, Amy. Thank you for coming. And what's a, a reference for listeners? Where can they go and you know get find out more? Absolutely, yeah. They can check out our website, which is the Center for Medical Ethics and um, Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. We have all all kinds of information there on uh, what we do uh, down here in Texas. Okay, very good. Well, I'm glad we don't live in the the Gattaca world, as you said. That's right. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.